Ready to be here till 12? We good? No? <laughs> okay. So um, the first thing I wanted to do actually uh, was give a little addendum to my talk. Um, as I was thinking about my talk, there was one point that I felt in preparing for it that I wanted to make more that I don't think I did actually in my talk. And that's the, um, the relationship between uh, satipatthana and concentration. Um, you know, the, uh, going to that, that statement from Sister Damadina, where she said that the satipatthana are the, is the cause of concentration. The Pali word is samadhi nimitta. Um, it could mean the sign of concentration or the cause of concentration. Um, and so it's not to say, uh, how should I put this? Satipatthana <coughs> is, um, is an important practice. It's part of your whole practice. It's not, I kind of felt like at the end I was talking a lot, jhana, 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 and I didn't want to give people the impression that you just practice jhana. Satipatthana is actually, all the practices in the Satipatthana help you to actually gain that concentration. When you're examining your experience through all these various ways, <clears throat> when you're starting to see you know, and, and understand, when you start to see clearly, that allows your, <clears throat> your mind to, have, you know, to be more calm. It helps to suppress the hindrances easier, which, of course, helps you to gain concentration. So these four satipatthana um, are to be done. And the great thing about the satipatthana is that, you know, practicing jhanas is something that, you know, or really deep concentration is something you do on the cushion. Satipatthana is done anytime, anywhere, any place. <clears throat> Examining... Like I said, you're at work, something happens. You're examining your feelings. At home, something happens. Examining your feeling, examining your mind, the contents of your mind. It becomes part of, when you in fully engage in Satipatthana, it becomes part of everything that you do every day. Because you're fully engaged in examining your experience through those various uh, tools. So, and of course, that helps you to lead to concentration. So that, in, that is why both are very important to practice. Okay, so let's get to the questions. Other side first. Thank, thank you guys. If you're going to write something on, on two pages, thank you for numbering and all these kind of things. That's good. Does there ever come a time in meditation when you should let go of attention on the breath? Isn't that sort of clinging when we don't let go of that? Also, can you share what, you're, what you experience when you meditate? Um, well, in terms of my own experience, I experience my mind telling me not to meditate. <laughs> and, and trying to tell me all kinds of things what I could do instead. And so, why are you sitting here? That's a very common thing. The, the mind... Even if you do it for years and years and years, it's still, I'll be meditating here, at, especially at night, and my mind will be like, you had a hard day. You 
you meditated and you did all this work, just go to your room. Just rest for a little bit. Don't, don't, don't meditate. And that's when I have to be like, no, shut up, I'm meditating. <laughs> There's a, what I found is that in the beginning, you don't want to be too hard on yourself, but as you practice over you know, a long period of time, and you develop some wisdom in, into <clears throat> finding your theme and having that practice, you know there's times where you know you have to push yourself and know you have to be hard on yourself. And it's for the benefit of your practice. So, okay. So does there ever come a time when you should let go of attention on the breath? Yeah, I think uh, I mentioned it in, in my guided meditation that if there is a, a feeling of, pain and itch or something that is so strong that it pulls you away from your object of meditation, that's when you can really take that as your object. What I find is if I'm, I'm following my breath, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gaining calm, something happens, an itch. Actually, what I find is that when I'm calm enough, there's like this itch period like you get calm, everything starts to itch. And what I found is if you endure that, if you don't itch, if you just let it and you just watch it, you get over that hump. And then I've been in concentration and I've been like, oh, wait, I haven't felt an itch in like 20 or however long it was. So, you, so like that, you can actually use your, putting your awareness on that item, on that object, <clears throat> and that can actually help you to continue with your concentration. So that's the only time um, that I, I guess you say, take attention on the breath. The Buddha is very clear. The Buddha says that basically, the Buddha said that mindfulness of breathing will take you all the way to Nibbana. Mindfulness of breathing, if you go to Anapanasati Sutta, um, you'll see the Buddha says, mindfulness of breathing fulfills the four frames of reference or the four foundations of mindfulness, which fulfills the seven factors of awakening which leads to awakening. So <clears throat> find, following your breath, you can follow it the whole way. Do the Q&A sessions help you in your understanding of the Dhamma? Yes. Doing talks and q and I, I see where I'm weak. I see where I need to learn. I see where I need to... Um, where I need to contemplate and to understand. So yeah, teaching and uh, doing talks and all this kind of stuff. I was, um, I was talking to Bhante G and he told me, he, he, he was reading like, a, like chapter 13 and 14 in Mindfulness in Plain English. And he says, Jayasar, he says, I was just reading these and I couldn't, I can't believe that I actually wrote these two chapters. <laughs> And what he was saying was that he was, this was, when he wrote those, it was during a time where he was intensely practicing and intensely teaching. For decades, Bhante wasn't here. Eight months out of the year, he was all over the world teaching. So, that, so he, so the T, and this is what he tells us. He says, <clears throat> this shows you what you know and what you need to learn and how, and, and it helps you to understand the Dhamma yourself. It helps your own practice. So, yes, I actually, one of the, I started doing these recordings actually to watch myself and to examine what I do is I'll watch the, the talk and I'll see, 
my body language, what I said, all these kind of things, and I'll analyze that to try to do it better the next time. I have a knowing belief that all living creatures have a soul. Can I completely practice the Buddhist faith dharma with this belief? I know reincarnation is true, but also know that I have a soul residing in this impermanent body. Please help. Practice. Just continue your practice. You know, you'll see what it is. You'll see and understand what is when you get there. You know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I can't say that I understand. Like, I fully know that I have, you know, a soul or not self. I'm not there yet. But I practice. And I examine my experience. And I use the framework that the Buddha has given us through the Satipatthana through the concentration, through jhanism, through um, you know, the Noble Eightfold Path. I follow that framework. And that gradually, gradually <clears throat> allows me to start to understand little by little. Um, you know, even with <clears throat> anatta, not self, I've had, I've, the way my experience has been is that it's not like one day you, f you know you have a self, the next day, oh my God, Eureka, I don't have a self. It's like as you're practicing, you're chipping away and you start to get these little insights and you start to, you start to question. Well, I used to think those thoughts were mine, but it doesn't feel like that anymore. Where are they coming from? And so you, you start to really kind of look at that. And when you realize you don't have to own your thoughts, that's when you start to understand that you have a choice and you start to understand that you can have freedom. A thought comes into my mind. The thought is to go up to somebody and punch them in the face. Right? I can look at that thought. I can let it go. I don't have to, I can say, the Buddha says, this is not mine, this is not me, this is not myself. I do that. that that's my, I guess my advanced version of number 19 the sutta that i was talking about you when you automatically know that this is not this is a harmful uh thought if you've developed yourself that you start to kind of understand and not and you start to see this i just remind myself i don't have to own this i don't have to identify it as mine i don't have to accept it as myself like the buddha gift thing that bante panya said i can just let that gift go give it back i don't have to take it and run with it so, <clears throat> same thing with karma, rebirth, all these kind of things. Don't let that get in the way of your practice. Just practice. If you, know, if you have these doubts and all these kind of things, it's okay. Just practice. Keep an open mind. That's the most important thing, in my opinion, is to keep an open mind. If you have an open mind, your mind can change. As you gain new insights as you gain information. If you have a closed mind, you're not going to even put in the work to get to the point where you can start to see and change your mind. So a closed mind is done. There's no point in, you know, there's no point in practice. There's no point in trying to do something better. Your mind's already closed. You already think you know everything. Like me when I was in my 20s. <laughs> now I realize I know absolutely nothing. But... <laughs> Uh, that's what happens when you get older, I guess. Okay. Would you please define meditation versus mindfulness versus vipassana? Bhante versus bhikkhu. Okay, that's easy. Uh, bhikkhu is just our official 
the official title. Bhikkhu is, uh, it, it means mendicant. That, that's what we are. We're bhikkhus. And uh, female monastics are bhikkhunis. Um, Bhante is kind of like, to, I guess to equate it to like a, a Catholic priest, right? Priests are priests. But if you grew up in the Catholic Church like me, you know you don't, you don't say, hey, priest. You say, hey, father. It's the same thing kind of like with monks. You don't say, hey, bhikkhu. That's kind of, you know, not the, I've been told anyway by other monks in the past that that's not, you know, appropriate. <laughs> So Bhante basically just means venerable sir. So it's just like saying, you know, it's just like saying, you know, you call a priest father, you call a bhikkhu Bhante. Um, you know, or for uh, bhikkhunis it's Aya, A-Y-Y-A. Um, Aya or Bhante. So that was the easy part. Now, <laughs> defining meditation versus mindfulness. Well, Vipassana, I'll, I'll cut that out real quick because I, I said this in my talk. Vipassana, according to the Nikayas, according to the suttas, Vipassana is seeing deeply. It's understanding impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. That's what Vipassana is. It doesn't say in the suttas, to practice Vipassana, first you do this, then you do that. You know, it's not a technique. It's become a technique in the last however many decades. Um, but it's not a, it's not a, in the suttas, it's not like a separate technique like you practice mindfulness of breathing, satipatthana, vipassana. Um, so you think, you, it's better to think of it as a state of mind than a technique. Mindfulness is, the word uh, that people, when you hear the word mindfulness, the Pali word that people, that, that, that's coming from is sati. And sati is an interesting word because actually what it means is memory, to remember. Um, so if you really wanted to say something, if you're mindful of something, you're keeping it in mind. You're remembering it. In the ancient, you know, before there was uh, written, stuff that was written down, how you learned the Dhamma was you remembered it, you memorized it, and you practiced it. And it's interesting, I read this amazing book called uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. And in this book, this guy talks about, um, examines and, and for a year is with these people who memorize like whole books and they just put it all on their head and they have competitions to see how many people can memorize, how much you can memorize. And there's a section in there where he talks about the ancients. And in the old days, how you actually learned was, and this was everybody, this wasn't just like the most, you know, monks or the most, uh, the biggest scholars. How you learned was you put it to memory and then you, you know, you, as you contemplated it and you had it in your mind. <clears throat> and I, you know, this is, it's interesting. I was meditating for years before I really got into the suttas. So for my experience was I was meditating. I had this experience I started reading the suttas, and it was like, holy crap, the Buddha is saying exactly what I have experienced. And that's how I developed my confidence, that the, what, I, what the Buddha is saying is right, because I was seeing, I saw it in my own experience, and then I read it first. But if you have it in your mind first, then as you're going along, it's a framework. That's what these suttas, this is what the discourses are. It's a framework for your experience. And so you can understand it, ah, that's what this is. Um, so that's so mindfulness is not just 
okay, I have to pay attention. Actually, there's, there's another word, sampajanya, which is when you, they'll often come together, sati sampajanya. When you hear mindfulness and clear comprehension, that's sati and sampajanya. Sampajanya is that clearly understanding, clearly knowing what you are doing. Like um, if in the, the body section, you know that you are, when you are walking, when you are stretching, when you are going to the bathroom, all of these kind of things. So sati and sampajanya kind of work together um, in that regard. And that I'm actually still, I'm still kind of exploring that myself to fully understand how they work together and, and the words and all that kind of stuff. It's not easy for sure. And so meditation is, um, the word for meditation actually um, in Buddha is um, bhavana. Bhavana is cultivation. And so that's what you're doing. The, what, what you're doing is you're cultivating, like, some, like a farmer cultivates a plot of land, you're cultivating your mind. So that is this whole practice, everything, the Noble Eightfold Path, everything that you do when you follow the Buddhist path is bhavana, it's cultivation. I noticed that in your talk today, you were going to use the word negative, but quickly caught yourself and said unskillful. Why? <clears throat> uh, I, because I, I want to use terminology that's more, more closely related to Dhamma terminology. That, that's really the only reason. I mean, <clears throat> I, I think it's related to connotations. And, uh, you know, unskillful, there, there's, there's two words. There's kusala and akusala. Kusala means skillful. Akusala means unskillful. Um, so when you hear skillful and, un and unskillful, that is the words that they're talking. So <clears throat> I like to use those two words instead of <clears throat> negative. But in, in essence, it's basically the same thing. I've heard of a stage of meditation very concentrated and stable just before jhana called access concentration. Do most people who practice meditation as taught by Bhante Ji do, do most people who practice meditation, I guess, I mean, taught like as how Bhanteji teaches it, and do so in a dedicated and consistent manner, reach jhana? So in terms of access concentration, that's an interesting thing. What? Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, there's three. There, I don't see a three on this one. <laughs> then I would have known. Is this actually separate from jhana, or is this part of the first jhana? <clears throat> Access concentration is something that doesn't exist in the suttas. It's not, a, it's not talked about, um, but it's something that's, that's been named and come on later in like commentaries and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I don't know a lot of the specifics about access concentration. What I've heard Bhanteji talk it, call it is a jhanic quality concentration. So these are concentrations that are not jhana yet, but they have a lot of the qualities of jhana. <clears throat> and uh, so, <clears throat> you know, I think that's uh, something that, in examining my own experience, I've felt like I've probably experienced uh, access concentration but I don't know what to call it. 
Um, <clears throat> you know, I am not a genre. I've, n I've never been in genres. That's the first thing to tell you guys. Like Bonte said, even if I was, I probably couldn't tell you now that I'm a monk. But this was all before. This was as a layperson. Um, <clears throat> I had not, you know, uh, for years, I was like, jhana sounds, that's for like advanced meditators. I, I'll, you know, it'll probably take me like till I'm 80 to get to jhanas and all these kind of things. I didn't even study about it. I didn't learn about it. I knew a little bit from the suttas. And I, for the longest time, actually, my practice was not following my breath. I, growing up having asthma and allergies and always sniffling and always cloggy, I, I have a lot of issues with my breath. So I always had trouble following my breath in the beginning. And when I, for the majority of my practice, I was actually what you would call a dry Vipassana practitioner. I was just follow, sitting there, observing what's going on, feelings, mind, body, etc., <clears throat> and how I, how I feel like what Sister Damadina and what the Buddha says is, is correct is because doing that practice, all of a sudden one day, I found the breath. Or I should say the breath found me. I was just observing, and that actually builds concentration, and that bring, builds calmness. And all of a sudden I had a breath. And the breath started, and I could tell, I knew for sure that I was not controlling my breath at all. And even to this day, I, I understand, uh, even though I feel like I'm not controlling my breath, I know deep down in a minuscule way I'm controlling my breath in one way or another. I can understand this, 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 this um, state that I was in, I was able to follow my breath with no problems whatsoever. No, I knew, noticed no control. And it was actually at my desk at work, before work, that... I was visited by a friend. I had a nimitta come to me for the first time. And I knew, I knew enough to know what a nimitta is. A nimitta is a sign of concentration. It's a sign that you're about to enter jhana. So I'm, I'm in this wonderful, what I guess what I would consider access concentration. And I'm feeling happy and I'm following my breath. And all of a sudden the nimitta comes up. And the instant that I knew what it was, I got excited and it went away. <laughs> That was four years ago. I've not seen it since. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I've got to learn about jhana. I came here and I, and I took the, you know, I came to the jhana retreat with Bhante G. And, and now I, and I understood. Basically, I, was, I had dumb luck. And you come to the jhana retreat, it's awesome because Bhante explains to you that there's a, there's a specific path, a specific thing that you do, you know, how to get to the jhanas. And the main thing about that, I, it was a nine-day course. Five of those days, Bhante was talking about the hindrances. He's not talking about all these fancy things about jhana. The hindrances are the key to jhana. When you subdue the hindrances, jhana comes. So just work on <clears throat> following your breath. Observe the hindrances. That's what I do. So, and if I get any further, I can't tell you anymore. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So yes, if you follow this way, you'll get there eventually. This life or maybe many lives in the, fa in the future, who knows. Man, if I go at this rate, I really am going to be here till 12. <laughs> oh, I see a number two, but that's all I see. Oh, oh okay, this is the front page. Once concentration can be held on the breath for an uninterrupted and lengthy period, you mean more than 20 seconds? Are there any techniques or approaches 
you would recommend to facilitate movement into jhana. You keep following the breath. If you keep following the breath, you're going to, I would say, you know, where it says, uh, keeping concentration on the breath. If you keep your concentration on the breath for more than a minute or two, you, you have, you're a superstar meditator because even you do this for years and it's still your mind is just, you know, going to distract you in one way or the other. Um, but, you know, as you keep coming back, every time you keep coming back and if you're able to, to get to the point, each time you get distracted away, it doesn't distract you as much because you keep coming back. And then that kind of just builds in, builds in, and you get into deeper, more calm states. And if you're in a state where there's no hindrances in your mind, then the jhana will come of its own accord. Once a meditator attains jhana, does this become something learned and can therefore uh, thereafter be entered into regularly? Bhanteji says, if you, if, you follow, if you followed a path, like for instance, like using my experience, I have no idea how I got to where I got to, which is why four years later, I'm still trying to work it out, you know? So, and who knows, it might not even have been right jhana if I got to it. it maybe it would have been wrong jhana. Um, so... But basically the way Bhante explains it is you understand the way you got to jhana. The first time you get into jhana, he says, in a second you're out of it again. Because in that first jhana, you're still, it's still right by the hindrances. So those hindrances are ready and waiting. You know, you thought, oh, you thought that you got rid of us? Nope, boom, and then you're out of jhana. <clears throat> and so what he says is you practice that. You understand how you got there. You go right back. You do the same thing. You examine why you left. And you keep going back. So the way he explains it is, and uh, by the way, mindful, beyond mindfulness in plain English, is the whole book is about jhana from Bhante Ji. Uh, if you don't have it and you're interested, I highly suggest it. So basically what he says is you're practicing the jhana. You're going back in. And each time you're getting better and better and examining and you master it and you start to become, like I was saying before, you start to become tired of the, that jhana and when that happens, you naturally slip into the next one. And that just goes the same way all the way to the fourth one. Do you think running can be called a meditative um, practice? Actually, I was a runner. And um, I did do meditating while I was running. Um, I, I, I'm very big on walking meditation. So for me, it was kind of an extension of walking meditation. It was keeping my mind on my feet, um, you know, and also kind of just being aware of what my body was doing, you know, the heavy breathing and these kind of things. So I think you can definitely use it as a form of, underst- of looking at the mind, looking at the four satipatthana. You discussed in metta practice, or you discussed how metta practice can help dispelling and dispelling greed, hatred, and delusion. Oh, metta actually is only really for, it's a direct counter to hatred. Um, I mean, you could pro, I could see how <clears throat> metta could help you with your greed, but that might be more on the, along the lines of 
See, there's, there's four Brahma Viharas. There's metta, karuna, which is um, compassion, mudita, which is appreciative joy, and upeka, which is equanimity. So I don't know if metta itself would help with the greed. Probably some of the other Brahma Viharas, like... Um, like uh, appreciative joy because you're learning you're practicing letting go of jealousy and covetousness like oh they they have this you know they shouldn't have this why do they have this i should have this so that those probably fit that better oh okay how does it dispel delusion it doesn't <laughs> metta metta is the only thing that dispels delusion is wisdom that's it vipassana dispels delusion What are the three fetters that are removed when becoming a stream enter? Doubt. When you become a stream enter, you have a brief experience of Nibbana. So if you have that experience, there's, there's no more doubt. Your doubt is gone. You want, you've seen it for yourself. Doubt is gone. The other thing is the belief that rules and rituals and, and rites will get you to Nibbana. It's not that you believe that, oh, rituals are stupid. I'm a stream mentor. I don't need to do them anymore. It's, it's that it was common in the time of the Buddha that they feel you do these rituals and that gives, brings you to awakening. You realize that, no, that's not going to, bowing and doing anything is not going to bring you to awakening. You can use the rituals as a support for your practice, but they're not to, to bring you to awakening. And the other one is identity view, view of self. There's still a little, there's a little part of you that hasn't let go of conceit yet. But for the most part, you understand basically that this is not self. So those are the three things that you really, um, you know, when you, and you actually, you can develop one first. There, there's there's any all the stages of awakening. There's two types. There's two parts to that. There is the um, the initial stage where you get on the path, and then there's the fruition stage. So basically, when you when you become uh, get on the path to becoming a, a stream enter, you have done one of these fetters. You've whether doubt, identity view, whatever it is. You've all, you've worked enough on one of those fetters that it's almost gone and you become a stream enter. Uh, or at least you get on the path, and then once all three of them are gone, then you're uh, a stream enter. Is being intelligent a prerequisite to becoming enlightened? So much to learn. Um, I would say no. I would say, you know, um, examining your experience is what's a, a prerequisite to enlightenment. And also, what's intelligent? What does that mean? Book intelligent? You know, being able to take a, a, a bunch of metal and turn it into a car intelligent? You know, what, 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 is, what does intelligent mean? You know, there's lots of different kinds of intelligent. But I wouldn't say it's a, a prerequisite. There's also a lot of people who are intelligent, but are really ignorant. <laughs> So, I don't, I don't put too much stock in, <clears throat> in intelligence. 
It's important, but it's not the end-all, be-all. I am totally convinced of <clears throat> anatta on an intellectual basis. Good for you. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> okay, I am really interested in getting an <clears throat> experiential understanding of anatta. But is that like saying, I am really interested in becoming enlightened? Or can one get a measure of real, or of real <clears throat> experiential understanding of anatta <clears throat> before and perhaps well before becoming enlightened? Well, I think that I answered the question with, um, with talking about the Sotapanna. You know, you, you, you haven't fully realized it, but you've gotten a long way into you know, understanding that. So yes, <clears throat> it's a gradual path. Do Theravada man, uh, monasteries in Sri Lanka offer retreats to lay people, or is it more of a Western practice? I think there are some. Um, y- y- you know, I don't know how big that is. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's very common in in, in uh, Buddhist countries that you know most people, including monks, don't meditate. Um, but there, each country has like <clears throat> revival movements and stuff like that. And I, I have some people from I've never met. I just they friend requested me on Facebook. They're from Sri Lanka, and I've spoken to them. And you know they're part of this. You know, trying to you know they, they'll they'll say stuff, and people will come here. They'll say like, I I was never taught this growing up, like meditation and and all these like stuff like that. They were taught specific things. And so, you know, then, you know, they, they come to a place like here and they're like, whoa, look, you know, I, I was never taught this at all. So there's people, you know, I'm sure there are, you can go to Sri Lanka and find, you know, um, places that have retreats. I know various, even some Western monks I know have gone over there and, and done retreats. Um, you know, how easy it is to find one and how prevalent it is, I don't know. Um, how is the... In- Interface between monastics and lay people similar or different over there? Um, I would say in my limited experience, there's a way that I talk and and portray myself to Westerners and there's a way that I talk and portray myself to people who are from Buddhist countries. It's night, it's, in many ways, it's night and day. And the reason why is because people have different expectations, right? The, you know, Westerners are going to come, they're going to shake my hand, they're going to kind of expect me to be kind of like more like the Dalai Lama or something, like, you know, engaging and happy, and, which is, I want to be that way anyway. So, but not all monks are like that. Some monks, you know, want to be more serious and stuff like that. And, um, but, you know, so for Westerners, I'm a bit more boisterous and, and more, you know, talking and stuff like that. Um, but I don't want to, when people come here and they have a certain perception of how monastic should be, I don't want to, I, I want to, <clears throat> I should, I'm, I'm basically what I'm saying is I'm trying to be respectful of how they feel I should be as a monastic. So I, you know, in that regard, I talk to them and, and you know, um, act how, they are used to monks acting. 
Like there's a, <clears throat> a famous monk who was talking about his experiences coming to the West. And he's actually a contemporary of Bhante Ji. He lives over in, in uh, L.A. And, um, you know, he talks about coming over here. You know, people, you know, get offended if you don't shake hands and all this kind of stuff. And he talks about, like, if his, you know, the people from his country saw him shaking hands, they feel like, oh, like he's breaking rules and he's such a horrible monk and all these kind of things. But for Westerners, he shakes hands. So he's kind of in this, you know, in between. And Bhante Ji told me a story of a monk who was at a, a big event with um, the Queen of England. And the Queen of England goes and starts shaking people's hand. And this monk is like scared, like to shake the, the, the Queen of England's hand. But he does it because it's the Queen of England. It's, you know, it's to be compassionate. And it was a scandal in Sri Lanka for a year. It was in the newspapers and everything. So that Bhante Ji told me that story. So, you, you know, you have to, there, there's different people have different expectations with regards to monastics. On Thursday, you named several books of the Pali Canon as being the sources of all the teachings at the Bhavana Society, but you didn't include the Abhidhamma. Why not? Abhidhamma is a later edition. Abhidhamma is not part of um, the early Buddhist text. Um, and this is both examining it in a scholarly way, and, but also um, examining it in... <coughs> the way it, how it compares to the actual suttas themselves. Um, Abhidhamma in, in many ways is just an extrapolation of, you know, like it, the Buddha says, there's three kinds of feeling. Abhidhamma extrapolates it to a hundred plus whatever kind of feelings. Well, the, the Buddha also says a hundred and eight feelings in, in the suttas too. But, so that's just kind of an example. You know, there's this, many, this number of, of con, kinds of consciousness. Abhidhamma, there's X number of consciousness. So it's, it's, it's basically... <coughs> trying to take what the Buddha was talking about and make it into a, almost like a scientific kind of worldview understanding. Um, and, and that's why we don't really teach from that. Um, it's very big in, in Buddhist countries and stuff like that. Um, but Bhante doesn't, and he, he'll use the Abhidhamma in the commentaries every once in a while, <clears throat> but for the most part, he doesn't teach from them at all. For me, one of the things that drew, that drew me to the, to the Nikayas was the Buddha was telling it straight and simple and easy for me to understand in my experience. The Buddha says that he, he teaches with an open palm, not a closed fist. There's nothing hidden. He's not hiding something till you're a certain level and then he's going to tell you or anything like that. He teaches everything. Um, and so for me, Reading this is just, wow, this is amazing stuff. And then I go to read the Abhidhamma and I'm like, almost like it's like a physics book or something. So I was like, no, this is, but I can't say that I've actually read all of it. I've only tried to delve into it. So I'm probably not the best person to talk about Abhidhamma, but that is why um, Bhante doesn't teach from it. If being on the path means being able to answer all of the, our questions with kindness, a calm mind, and non-judgment, not to mention discernment of clarity, then it seems all the world would benefit from the path. Well, yeah, of course. I mean. 
but all the world's not going to follow the path. Even the Buddha, the Buddha, there's a wonderful sutta where Buddha says that the, the Tathagata, when he's talking about himself, that's what the word he usually uses. He says, the Tathagata is not concerned with how many people will become awakened. He's cons- he, but he knows that all those who will become awakened will do so following the Noble Eightfold Path. We have learned today that there are many types of meditation. If we were to, to leave Bhavana with some homework to do for the next time, what would your assignments be? <clears throat> practice. Put it into practice. That's the, that's the best part. Put it into practice. Um, and, you know, of course, obviously, like I said, I basically just skimmed it. I mean, reading the suttas. You go on, you know, go on YouTube. You'll find five or six different, big, you know, very well-known monastics talking about Satipatthana, talking about Anapanasati. See what they say. That's, that's what I do. You know, for most of my, for most of my Buddhist you know, practice, almost, you know, eight, nine years, I was the only Buddhist I knew in my daily life. YouTube, you know, and once I found here, I came here a couple times a year as much as I could to get off, you know, that I could get off work. But, you know, I learned a lot from my own practice, from listening to Dhamma talks online, and from, you know, reading. So I highly suggest you can, you know, you can further examine and understand these. Satipatthana Sutta, and Anapanasati, those are basically the two, the, of all the suttas, thousands of suttas, those are the two main suttas of the Buddha's directions on how to practice, directly how to practice. So understanding them is very important to your practice. That's what I've been, you know, I mean, over the years I've <coughs> developed in my understanding of Satipatthana as I practice and and now I'm to the point where, in, especially now that I have to ask question, answer questions about it, and I'm I, and I'm getting a little deeper. I'm trying to really understand it in its full capacity and fully understanding. And what am I doing? I'm, I'm listening to what Bhante G talks about it. I'm listening to various different monastics that I trust. I'm really I'm delving into the Pali. When you when you really actually understand the Pali, it's it's interesting. Because then you wonder why people chose translations that they did. Because one, one Pali word can mean like six different things sometimes. So how people choose the word that they use is interesting because that affects, you know, how when you, as you as a Westerner coming to this in English and you say you use this word and, and it affects how you practice. What is the benefit of meditating with others? I don't know. Honestly, I'm I'm not good with meditating with others. I I'd prefer to always be by myself in the woods somewhere. Honestly, um, I I never meditated with groups until I started coming to retreats here. Maybe that's why. Um, <clears throat> no, what people say is that meditating with others, they feel like an energy. Again, I've never felt that energy. Sorry. <laughs> um, they feel like an energy. They feel like a like a camaraderie that you're here with people. Like when I come in here, I you know you know I. I talk to myself and say I'm, I'm here I'm meditating with my Dhamma friends you know like that kind of stuff to build that um, <clears throat> and you know having a group that you can meditate with like in your day you know like maybe once a week or something like that you can meditate with them and then be able to talk Dhamma with them that's very important um, so if you can if you have that I highly suggest it 
When you were a layperson, what did you do to nurture your practice? Read, community, a teacher? Pretty much explained a little bit of that, uh, about that already. Um, <clears throat> what I found was uh, incredibly important when I started coming here to do retreats, I also started coming here to just do like four-day weekends. Like my job, I was in child protective services and I had a lot of overtime. So sometimes I would just, you know, every other month, every couple of months, I would just take a four-day weekend and I'd just come here just to live with the monks and the residents and, and to, just to be here. Um, and so <clears throat> what I find was helpful was that when you, when you leave a retreat, for, for, for a little bit, you're like, oh, like, yeah, I'm a meditator. I'm, I'm learn. I got, I'm, I'm, you know, I got this. I'm going back out into the world. And then like three weeks later, you're like, oh, where's that? You know, you, you know, craving and all kinds of stuff and your meditation's out the window. What I found was that if I am able to, in certain, when, when I can come back here or at least be with some kind of Dhamma group or something, I come back here, it kind of like revitalizes my batteries. It reminds me of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then I can come back out and do the same. It's the same cycle. You know, in the beginning, you're, you're all revved up and, and ready to go and practice. And over time, while you're out in the world, the Mara keeps pounding on you. And then you, you know, you come back again and you gain insight and, and, um, and energy and passion again. And then, so it's you just, I would suggest that. You know, I was a five-hour drive away. Um, so I wasn't very close, but it was worth it coming here because there's no other place. There's maybe one other place like this in the whole country, to be quite honest with you. There's, no, there's not that many places that are not only monasteries, but also retreat centers and places where you can go and, and talk to the monks you know, casually and all this kind of stuff. So for me, this place was a gem. I knew it was just like a, <laughs> it was a dream come true. So that's what I suggest. That's how, you know, nurture your practice. Keep going. You do the, keep learning and practicing. You, you, knowing you, the, the Buddha <clears throat> talks about four kinds of people. The kind of person who just meditates and doesn't learn the, 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 you know, the suttas. The kind of person who just learns the suttas and doesn't meditate. The kind of person who doesn't do either. And the kind of person who does both. And the kind of person who does both is the superior person. So <clears throat> understanding, reading and learning the suttas and understanding that and also practicing your meditation is important. <clears throat> Any advice on dealing with disrespectful people? Let it go. <clears throat> other people, <clears throat> you have no say, you have no control over other people at all. You, well, we all, ba honestly, we barely have control over ourselves, to be honest with you. I mean, if you really look at it, um, <clears throat> meditation gives you little, little by little the ability to do that. But, um, you know, if people are disrespectful, <clears throat> the best thing to do, first of all, there, there's a wonderful sutta, the Kakachupama Sutta, the simile of the saw. Some of you might know about it from the end, where the Buddha says, even if you were taken by bandits and chopped up limb from limb, if you had any kind of ill will, you would not be doing my, my bidding. That's the famous part of the sutta. But in the beginning, <clears throat> the Buddha, it's, it's about words. It's about people, you know, um, a monk is overly 
overly attached to other monks. And if somebody, you know, if the people yell at those monks or disrespect those monks, the monk gets really pissed off. And the Buddha basically trains him. He says, this is how you should train. If somebody, if, you know, somebody is <coughs> yelling or cursing or even throwing sticks and all these kind of things, you train yourself. My mind shall remain unaffected and I shall utter no evil words. And starting with that person, I will <coughs> pervade the world. Uh, you, no, starting with that person, I will pervade the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with limitless goodwill, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility or enmity. Yeah, so, so basically, that's how he's teaching you how to do that. If somebody's disrespectful for you, to you, you just let it go and you follow your own mind, watch your own mind, and practice metta. Practice compassion for that person too. Maybe they're having a bad day, you know? So... <clears throat> in yesterday's Dhamma talk Bhante spoke on contemplating the connection between Namarupa and consciousness and also contemplating the five aggregates is this kind of contemplation done as a meditation practice or, <clears throat> or is it something done apart from mindfulness meditation if something done apart from mindfulness meditation could you comment little about the best way to begin such a contemplative practice. Well, that's, something like that's interesting because it's, it's partly in, intellectual, and, intellectual and partly experiential. You're kind of trying to integrate the experience you have with the understanding of the Dhamma at the same time. And so, I mean, that can happen while you're sitting on the cushion. It also can happen while you're sitting at your computer desk. Um, <clears throat> either way, it's, it's a, f a form of contemplation. What you're trying to do, <clears throat> like I was talking about me trying to really fully understand the Satipatthana, understanding you know, the, the, the Pali words and all that, you're, you're putting your experience and your intellect together to try to come up with a firm and consistent understanding in your mind. So, and you can do that at any time. <clears throat> What's your daily life like? Busy. You know, you know it's interesting. I, I posted this um, because I normally don't, but we, I don't know if you guys don't know this, but we had an issue this morning with the, the boiler that heats this meditation hall. So, and this is to give you a little insight <clears throat> as to what monks, the monks here do. Um, I came in here at, what, 9 o'clock to give you guys a guided meditation, right? At 8 o'clock, Arush and I were replacing a pump that busted on, the <laughs> on this boiler. So we're in there, we're getting dirty, and we're replacing things and ratcheting and all this kind of stuff. And then I realized, oh, crap, I have to give a guided meditation. <laughs> so I run in here, and I give the guided meditation, <clears throat> and I leave out, and, and Arush is there, okay, okay, let's go back. And so we went back, and we finished installing the so there's, there's a hint into, into the daily life here. <clears throat> you know, we, we, we do our meditation, we do our chanting, we have time to learn, um, and we also are maintaining and working and, you know, doing all kinds of stuff around here. So it's very busy and it's almost never boring because we always have visitors, we always have things exploding and breaking and... <clears throat> 
I have often heard and read in Buddhism that we should not have expectations. Good idea. Expectations equal suffering. It seems that maybe we need expectations, but must know when to let go of them, no? I expect a mechanic to fix my car if I pay her him. I expect people not to keep their word. I expect people not to keep their word, etc. with metta. Um... Hmm. Well, <clears throat> I would examine that your expectations are based on certain societal morals and society, things that you've learned. Um, who says that, you know, the mechanic is going to fix your car? <laughs> you know, they, they might take your money and say, you know, or they might say, oh, you know, you have this problem and it's going to cost you a thousand dollars. I would say that... Um, you know, you give people, give, you, you could, <clears throat> how do I word this? It's interesting. I've never, I've never had this put in this way before, so I'm trying to think of this in a new light. Um, okay, you know what, I guess, I'm, maybe I'll agree that we need expectations and to a certain degree, <clears throat> but no one to let go of, and that's, that's a good point. <clears throat> There's a, a wonderful phrase, um, from military circles, it's the best laid plan does not survive first engagement. Basically, that means is you can plan all you want. As soon as that plan goes into action, it just goes to hell. And that doesn't even, that, that's not even just in combat, but that's in anything, anyway, work, whatever. Whatever you plan, <clears throat> nine times out of ten, it's not going to come out the way you planned it. Something's going to be different. Something's going to change. So if you plan, if you have expectations understanding that those expectations are not going to necessarily mean or equate to exactly what's going to happen, then, okay, have your expectations. But the suffering comes from having the expectations rigid and and saying this is what's going to happen, and then it doesn't. When not on retreat, what is the best way to study the Dhamma? Can you suggest book to read? What copy of the suttas? Um, okay, I'm not going to go into too much detail this, but I, what I will say, there's two websites um, that before I ended up going out and buying the Nikayas as a lay person for years, I just used these websites. First one is accesstoinsight.org. And this is a wonderful website because before I really became comfortable with the suttas, there was a lot of, I felt it was you know very hard to get into them. And they had this little feature called random sutta so you can just click on that and a sutta comes up and you start reading it's like i have no idea what they're talking about okay random sutta and so you keep clicking and you're just oh oh this is awesome okay i understand this and you just keep doing that and you start to you know that that's how i found so many suttas that i loved and then like later on i'm trying to like well where in the nikayas is this sutta i want to find out so i know exactly you know so doing that using that and the other one is sutta central dot net yes suttacentral.net those two are very good they have the nikayas oh they have you know pretty much all of the nikayas in there translated into english sutta central actually has it translated into chinese and tibetan and all that kind of stuff it's really interesting stuff um as far as books honestly anything that bonte g 
writes is great stuff. Um, I also like some of Ajahn Brahm's books. Um, and in terms of Satipatthana, I'm reading this book by Bhante Analyo, A-N-A-L-Y-O. Um, and uh, it's his, actually his PhD thesis was totally on Satipatthana. It's a whole book and it's been very enlightening so far. Um, so I highly suggest his, if you put in Analio and Satipatthana, you'll find them. What should I do once following the full breath <clears throat> is automatic. Looking for impermanence, I don't know how th that is different from closely following the breath. Hmm. <clears throat> Bhante G says that um, if the breath is boring, you're not doing it right. <laughs> and I, I partially see that and I partially don't yet. I'm still working on that myself. There's some times where you know, the, the, I lose, you know, I'm following the breath and I'm following the full cycle and I... Oh, I feel it coming in and I feel my chest expanding and I'm literally following the full cycle and then it, maybe I get bored with it, maybe I get distracted, I don't know, I go away and then I have to come back. Um, so I, I, you know, what I see is in terms of, I also, I'm like, okay, where is the impermanence in this? Where is the impermanence in this? And if you look at how fleeting your mind is, you can see that. It's, your mind is, you know, a thought will come and it'll take you away. And then it's almost like, you get the, like you're in a thought bubble and it, like it pops and all of a sudden you're back into your awareness and you put your mind back on the breath. And then another thought comes and takes you away into a thought world. And all of a sudden, boom, you're back into your awareness. So, and each time it's like you're starting over almost back onto your breath. So you follow, you know, what I found is trying to find and examine if I start to get a little bored with the breath, I try to find and examine a new aspect that I haven't seen before. Really trying to examine some kind of aspect. Um, and if the breath, I can't find it in the breath, sometimes I'll just examine my body or examine, you know, go through the satipatthana. It's trying to keep in your interest in investigating because with investigation comes energy and then it'll be nice and easy to keep going with the practice. Okay, 8 o'clock, who wants to stop and do meditation? You guys just want to get out of meditating, don't you? I remember when I'd be here on retreats, who wants to, no, no, let's keep, I'm really sore, I don't want to meditate anymore. It's the last day. No, okay. I have witnessed family members dying from cancer, so have I. Uh, it seems as death approaches, we tend to cling to life desperately and family are unable to let go despite the unavoidable truth. Very, very true. This causes much suffering, distress and confusion. What is the Buddhist way of dying? Have you ever witnessed something valuable to share? Uh, have, I have been there with two people died. My grandmother and my wife. I've seen people, uh, both my parents are cancer survivors. Three out of four of my grandparents died of cancer. I've seen a lot of death in my life. Um, so I guess I have a lot to say about this, but we don't have a lot of time. 
Uh, I would say that if somebody has to, people act and grieve and deal with things in their own way. When somebody's dying, wow, I really killed the mood, didn't I? It's like we're all laughing now. Everybody's like, come to the mindfulness of death retreat now. Um, when somebody is dying, <clears throat> people don't want it. My wife was, I had to make the choice of, she died of cancer, by the way, so it got to the point where I had to make the choice to let her die or to be intubated. I'm not a big fan of intubation. I don't like, you know, for me it's DNR. But anyway, her family wanted it another way. So <clears throat> I went with her family. And I could see that even though I mean, there, there was nothing, there was, it, was, it was done, it was over. They were holding on, you know, because you just, and, and I wasn't a Buddhist at that point, but I've always had <clears throat> interesting views on death. That's why we don't have enough time for me to talk about this, <laughs> honestly. Um, but, uh, so, but I saw that, you know, people have, you have to let people grieve and handle death in their own way. You don't want to force, you know, you don't, don't want to, try to control how they grieve and how they handle death. Um, it's worry about, <clears throat> I would say, concentrate on your own feelings, your own mind, your own practice. It is an unavoidable truth. One of the things, we're talking about things that impressed me in the suttas, is in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the sutta of the last days of the Buddha, there's a scene where the Buddha's on his deathbed, he's going, and everybody's wailing and crying and lamenting, ripping their hair and beating out their breath. <clears throat> and then it says, those who have, you know, those who understand, calmly were meditating there, saying, the Buddha said, all is impermanent. Anicca vata sankhara, all, all conditioned things are impermanent. How can this be otherwise? And I think, wow, I want to be like that. That's amazing that I can really understand that. Um, and so if you want to know what <laughs> the Buddhist way of dying, that's it. <laughs> of course, that's for arahants. We're all not there yet. <clears throat> There's a wonderful story from um, the, the monks. He was a contemporary of Bhante Ji uh, also, um, Bhante uh, Keshri Dhammananda. And the story of the, uh, when he found out he had cancer, he laughed. And the doctor said that was the only time he ever told somebody who had cancer, and they laughed. <laughs> There's another story, quick story, from Ajahn Brahm, where he was uh, in Thailand, and he had malaria, and he was in the hospital, and he was, you know, really sick. And his teacher came, Ajahn Chah, and, he, and he's telling the story, and he's like, oh my God, I was like, I was sick. I couldn't believe my teacher came. And he said that Ajahn Chah came into his room, said, Brahma Vamso, you'll either get better or you'll die. And then he just walked out. <laughs> and like for us, that seems so silly. Like, really? But when you know the Dhamma, that what else is there? You, 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 everything is impermanent. You're either going to get better or you're going to die. One way or the other. <laughs> One way or the other, the suffering you're going through now is going to end because it's impermanent. 
My walking meditation before was not so good at calming and focusing my mind as sitting mindfulness of breathing, but I tried combining walking, breath, and metta, and it seems to work great. Wow, that's a heck of a lot of stuff to juggle while you're walking. If it works, man, that's good for you. Um, Although we are near the end of the retreat, so maybe it's momentum from prior days. Possible. I suppose we can combine the various techniques, however they work best for us. Yes. Yeah. Without a doubt. You make this practice your own. Without a doubt. That's how you know what works for you. Somebody, I can say, I can guide you in a way that I know that works for me, but maybe it doesn't work for you. You make the practice your own. <clears throat> and how, how, I have <clears throat> how I have done this is, you know, trying always trying to do different things. You know, how, I, how am I doing my walking meditation? Um, you know, more, again, like I've said, walking meditation is a big thing for me. And anytime I hear a new way of walking meditation, I'll try it, see how it works. I've actually, just recently, I heard not only just from one source, but multiple sources about doing walking meditation backwards. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try it. <laughs> So like, you know, one, one retreat, I'm like walk, doing walking meditation out on the thing and I'm walking backwards and a couple of retreats go and they go like, like this. <laughs> and I didn't care. I'm, I'm practicing, I'm trying it out. So you make the practice your own. <clears throat> use, you know, of course you use wise, you know, people who, who you trust, wise teachers, you use them as a guide. You use the suttas as a guide. But you, w- w- the most important thing is do it, taking the practice, making it your own, and seeing that it's beneficial. <clears throat> if you try something new, it doesn't work, okay. You can let it go. You tried it, it's not working for you, then you move on. You have to make the practice your own. You have to take responsibility for your own practice because nobody else is going to do it for you. Being a classical musician, I've been listening to music in great detail in my mind since I was a child. Entire symphonies will play sometimes. When I is it when? Or when this happens while meditating, I <clears throat> try to be mindful of the experience, the hearing of it, the enjoying. It's a good way of doing it, yeah. Is there a better way to address this? P.S. Does the skeleton outside the hall have a name? Yeah, well, I named it because I, I spend a lot of time with the skeleton. I named him Jack. So it's Jack the skeleton. Um, <clears throat> I do my, pretty much every day, I do my uh, mindfulness of death and metta out there with Jack. So it's really good to go out there and hang out with Jack. I've also done stuff like I'll feel my own bones and I'll feel his bones just to realize, hey, you know, I got bones in me. It's not just for like, when we think of skeletons, we think of like Halloween. But no, we're all walking skeletons with a bunch of flesh hanging off of it, if you really look at it. So yeah, Jack is really cool. And he doesn't mind visitors. So hang out. But yeah, no, definitely, being aware of the experience is is important when it comes to the music. You, you're not gonna, you can't try to force the music away. Basically what's happening is, 
you set the groundwork for what comes in your mind. The more you, you listen to music, when I, when I first came here, everything was quiet and peaceful. I just had tracks going in my head for months. And it was interesting because <clears throat> sometimes they were so, it almost felt like it was like, the, like if you're hearing music, maybe like, you know, a mile away or something like that. Like it's almost like this really minute, I would hear like, and I'm like, is that music? Like I'm in the woods and it's like chirp, chirp, chirp. What, music? Yeah. So it's like your mind is, but basically that's your mind saying, I'm really bored. I want to have something going on. And so your mind starts playing music. Um, yeah, just be aware. Don't try to force it out. Don't try to, you know, the only way you're going to stop that for good is to become a monk and not listen to music anymore. <laughs> so it's going to be there. Use it as your, part of your experience for sure. My robe is falling apart. Okay. I love metta meditation and have used it for several years. Good. I find, however, that the warm, open feelings of metta is most present during a guided meditation. As soon as the teacher's words stop, the bright light of metta dims and the words become a rote mantra more than a feeling. Any advice? It's very important not to let it become a mantra. Change up the words. Um, change up how you practice metta. I've actually, probably for like the last year, I've had a lot of struggling with my metta too. Um, and you know, not even like having trouble trying to even find the feeling. Um, and I, you know, asked Bonte about that and he said that can happen. You know, so your metta is always going to change. It's always going to be different. Even your feeling can go away. He says, if your feeling goes away, pay attention to you, the content of your mind. Are you, is, is, are you free of ill will while you're practicing your metta? So, <clears throat> you know, the feeling is going to come and go. Um, but you want to keep practicing it <clears throat> because whether or not you have the feeling, at least you are changing your habitual tendencies in your mind. You're, every time you know, you're going to have ill will come up, you're going to have the power of metta to try to counteract that. So keep practicing no matter what. Change it up. <clears throat> I obviously, honestly, I find that the words, um, I'm actually not very good with guided meditations. Like not, I mean, like listening to them. It kind of bothers me, um, which is, uh, I don't know, it's just a, a thing of my own practice. So for me, actually, what I like to do the most is I like to use visuals. Like I'll just, like when we do the chanting out um, there, when we do the metta sutta, I'll just have, as I'm chanting, I'll have in my mind <clears throat> a picture, a vision of the earth with metta. And then I'll go out to the, my, the galaxy, universe, etc. So while I'm chanting, in my mind, visually, I'm giving metta. So, you know, you can do that. You don't even have to do words. You can do it visually. Um, play with it. Do what works for you. When you do analytical meditation, first noble truth, for example, do you just use reason and logic to think about suffering? Is it a kind of repetition of the teaching you have heard or read, <clears throat> plus your own experience, or is there a formula? The Four Noble Truths are to be realized by your experience. Um, doing it analytically is, is not really going to, I mean, it's going to get you to a point, but, you know, you, you have to really, like dukkha, you know, you, you can try to examine it intellectually, um, 
and that, that'll help, but until you actually see it, <clears throat> then, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to, to really understand. Like, uh, one, of the, um, one of the ways that you can translate anicca is unstable. And uh, <clears throat> I like to sometimes see things in that way as opposed to impermanent, because impermanent can sound like this, like, big word, and, like, everything's impermanent, and, like, yeah, well, okay, whatever. But if you see something as unstable, okay, something is unstable is undependable. The simile I use is like being adrift on the ocean and trying to grasp at floating debris and that debris is breaking up or it's falling apart and you can't, you, you're trying to not drown and you're just desperately trying to find something stable and there's nothing there. You can see that in your own life. You can see, I tried to do this. It wasn't stable. You know, I tried to, I attached to this. It changed. I suffered because of it. So if you, you can examine it, you can find these different ways to examine it, um, but try to examine it through your own experience, through your own past um, things that have happened. How do you think about their different views regarding Dhamma? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. What did I do? Oh, I put that away. This is a new one, I guess. Could you talk about the difference between Theravada and Tibetan from your perspective? Oy, we don't have time for that. <clears throat> um, how do you think about the different views regarding their Dhamma? Um, just in short, I'll say that while all of the traditions have a lot of core things in common, how they understand those core things how they practice those core things, how they interpret those core things can be vastly different. Um, you know, so different enough that people can decide that they want to do one practice over another. Um, you know, and I personally find a lot of differences between Theravada and Tibetan, um, which is really why I came to Theravada. And the, the first Buddhism I knew was Tibetan Buddhism. Like most Westerners, it's one of the, you know, the most well-known, along with Zen. Um, but a lot of stuff I found in what I saw in Tibetan Buddhism, I didn't care for. Um, and so I went to Theravada. Now, the irony of it was, a lot of the stuff I didn't care for in Tibetan, I also found in Theravada. <laughs> so I was like, oh, Tibet. And I was like, oh, man, it's here too. <laughs> Uh, but it's not to the same extent, but still it's there. So, you know, a lot of the, the, the conceit that I had regarding that was, but it can be very different. So, you know, <clears throat> I don't really, and I, there's a lot of stuff in Tibet and a lot of stuff I don't know a lot about. Um, like for, you know, in, in engaging with Buddhists on the internet, like I, I start hearing empowerments and this, and I'm like, well, what, what's an empowerment? And what are all these things? I don't know what's going on with this. So there's a lot of stuff about Tibetan Buddhism I can't really talk to because I don't know about. And doing so, it's kind of not right because I don't know. Um, there are, oh, Theravada seems to claim that to teach only what the Buddha taught. Um, that is pretty prevalent, I do have to admit. Um, it, basically, a lot, a lot of what, I, what I'll hear is that the, the Nikayas are the word of the Buddha. They call it the Buddha Vachana. Um, 
I can't say that they're the word of the Buddha. But like I, I think I said last time, it's the closest we're going to get. Um, so, but there's, you know, there's, there's parts of, you know, in Mahayana, they say, oh, this is, this is a Hinayana. These Theravadans only care about themselves. And then there's the Theravada people that say, all this stuff came later and was written by people. That's not what the Buddha said. So, the, you know, both sides have these people who are very degrading and negative to the other side. For me, I found that Theravada was the best. And in the beginning, I believed Theravada was the best. Now I believe Theravada is still the best for me. Um, and people practice how whatever is best for them. Um, could you please distinguish between the feeling of metta and compassion? Thank you. <clears throat> metta, you don't need a person. Um, metta is that you are developing a feeling of goodwill for all beings. Compassion, you need to see a person. Because compassion is you see a person suffering and you feel empathy for that person. You feel like you want to help them. Uh, metta is just developing goodwill. You don't, as a matter of fact, the Buddha doesn't... A common way of teaching metta these days is first for somebody you, know, you love and then for a neutral person, then a, then an ev- you know, a person you consider an enemy, etc., etc. The Buddha never taught that. That's something that, was, that came later. Um, the Buddha taught what I taught, you know, what I did with you guys today. Um, and for some people, it feels really impersonal. Um, but for me, I think that's the point. The point is that you're not supposed to be attached to one type of person or this or that. You're, you're, you're breaking through all your barriers and you're really making it limitless. Um, so for me, <clears throat> and plus being somebody who really loves astronomy and the universe and stuff like that, it, it helps my metta. You know, just to going out and, and, you know, sometimes I'll just go out at night and just look at the stars and just give metta to the stars, you know, because I'm practicing not limiting my metta. When I do walking meditation, the breathing technique works great, but not when I'm sitting. Counting also doesn't work. But if I focus on an intention, such as being grateful or on love, or being present in the moment, etc. I can stay focused on that for a long time. And if I get distracted, this works so much better for me to come back to the present moment. Is that okay in this Buddhist practice? I think, um, I don't know what the, the technique was that you were taught, but um, <clears throat> you know, I would say that you can do these practices as a way to support your uh, trying to develop your concentration. Um, I don't see any problems with that. Developing, <clears throat> being grateful is extremely important, and it's something that actually builds the deeper you get into the practice. You start to be grateful for like everything. Oh, this person did this little thing for me like 15 years ago and you start to have this feeling like, oh, I'm so grateful. Okay, I do see an end. So, and, and we're only 20 minutes late. So. What if I don't care about nirvana, nibbana, because I don't buy into the rebirth cycle? Is there a place in Buddhism for a more secular approach? 
what and where is the heart of the practice? I hear more emphasis on the mind and certainly have experience with it being the root of suffering. But what do you say about the true heart? <clears throat> I don't know anything about a true heart. Um, it's not something that's taught um, in Buddhism. I, I don't know if that has a specific connotation or it's supposed to have a specific meaning. Um, but, uh, oh, okay, okay. Where is the heart of the practice and what is the true heart? Okay, now I understand. Okay, um, the heart of the practice is examining your experience. That's the heart of the, the practice. Seeing your experience with insight and understanding the reality of experience. That is the heart of the practice. And you do that by following the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is the path of practice. And so, <clears throat> if you don't care about nirvana, it's okay. Just keep practicing. Eventually, you'll get there anyway. Doesn't <laughs> There's a, a little meme that I love. It, it's like an old guy and a young and a young kid, and uh, the little caption, uh, the young kid is saying, "It's okay. I didn't believe in rebirth when I was your age either." <laughs> How do you overcome the restlessness hindrance when I can't stay on my breath in and out? It keeps slipping. Um, Bhante Panya, I think, mentioned that uh, a little bit um, yesterday. But one thing that I actually <clears throat> find that's really, really helpful that I learned here from Bhante Ji, actually one of the things he gives for restlessness, is a counting method. Um, and I still use it to this day. So basically, what you do is <clears throat> you're counting from 1 to 10 to start off. You do the full cycle of the breath, in, out, and you count one. In, out, two, all the way to 10. And then keep going, in, out, nine, and you go back down to one. And so each time you come, then you, so you go up to 10, down to one. <clears throat> up to nine, down to one. Up to eight, down to one. Up to seven, down to one. <clears throat> I used to be sitting there during retreats doing that for like an hour trying to get to certain. Now it's like I get to, you know, down to like nine to one and I'm already almost, I'm fighting sloth and torpor because it, it works so good. It's like, you know, my mind is like this and then it's like this. So it, it works. It definitely is a really good thing to do. <clears throat> so you go all the way from one to two to one and then you just start over. You keep doing it. Um, <clears throat> most of the time you won't make it through the whole cycle without getting distracted um, so you just you can start over again if you want but I highly suggest that, that it, in my experience it works for a restless mind you can do, do that if you're you know, when you go to bed um, either tonight or when you go home if your mind is racing a mile a minute do it see what it does to your mind <clears throat> I highly suggest it the three deep breath thing, actually, I, I got from Bonte as well. He doesn't use it in, in, in the way I use it, but he, all, he suggested using those three deep breaths. Um, and I took it and I adjusted it to my own practice. <clears throat> we know pride to be a bad, unskillful thing, but it seems important to teach child pride and respect for the family, neighborhood, school, etc. Are there different kinds of pride, or is pride like the raft boat the Buddha spoke of? You can use it to get to a better place, but then leave it. 
it can't get you all the way to your end goal. I think that's a good way of, of thinking about it. Um, you know, but you can think about <clears throat> taking, you know, like when we talk about uh, family, neighborhood, etc. Taking pride in that is why are you taking pride in that? You're doing something, you know, you're taking pride in your neighborhood or your family because maybe your family or your neighborhood is doing something good that's beneficial for other people. So you're examining that. And, <clears throat> you know, you can take a, you can have a good feeling of that. You can, you can be, you know, you can examine yourself and understand, you know what, this is a good thing that we do. This is a good thing that our neighbors stick together and help each other and these kind of things. So that kind of pride, if you want to call that pride, that's, you know, that's fine. That's a, a beneficial thing. Um, now, if it's like, our neighborhood's the best, that neighborhood sucks, we have neighborhood pride, <laughs> then that's where it gets into <laughs> some, some negative stuff. So you want to watch the intention behind the pride. Almost there. Would you be able to share any recent meditation experiences or insights that we may find interesting or insightful for our, pra- uh, for our practice or inspiring? It's not recent, but you shared many in the past that I liked, such as when they were working on the roof of the meditation hall. Oh. Yeah, that was a really interesting one. <clears throat> so, um, basically, that one was about sound and how... Ajahn Chah, the teacher of Ajahn Brahm, he, he, years ago, I heard him, he said this, he said, in, ta- in dealing with sound, is the sound bothering you or are you bothering the sound? And I first heard that, I said, what the heck is he talking about? It's like some Zen Cohen or something. And <clears throat> I was here for a retreat <clears throat> and it was in the summer and for like three days, just here at like at this time while we're meditating, cricket, 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 cricket cricket literally for hours every day <clears throat> and I'm like meta to the crickets meta to the crickets I hate the crickets I hate the crickets <laughs> and I was I, my, I saw my mind getting so angry and negative and it clicked and I realized I'm bothering the sound I'm going out with my aversion to the sound and since then Sound doesn't bother me. It's interesting. And so this, this experience the person's talking about is, I was, it was in a posita. It was a day where we do a lot of meditating. I came in and I was meditating. And it was peaceful. All of a sudden I hear bang, 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 bang. They're on the roof. And they're working on the roof. And there's all noises. And I'm hearing them cursing and saying, <clears throat> and all this noise. And I'm sitting here. And I'm watching my mind. And I had no ill will, no anger, no aversion arise at all. And that's when I realized, holy crap, this works. I've had lots of those experiences, but I was like, wow, that's amazing. Of course, I didn't actually gain concentration the whole hour and a half I was trying to. (laughs) That's a whole other thing. But I didn't have ill will, so I considered that a win. Um, So anything like that recently, uh, they don't come that often. (laughs) Insights come when they want to, when you set the groundwork for them. That's one thing that I found. Um, you know, there was a time, in the, especially in the beginning of my practice, where I was like, oh, this insight is awesome. When am I going to get another insight? When am I going to get another insight? <clears throat> and I'm like, oh, man, I must be sucking. I'm not getting insights. What's happening? 
And then all of a sudden I'm doing something stupid. I'm not even sitting down and meditating and something hits me. I'm like, oh, wow. So that's when I realized like insight comes whenever it wants to come. You have to set the groundwork for it. When you do your practice, you're setting the groundwork for that insight. A funny story is the story of Ananda, the Buddha's, um, the Buddha's attendant. The Buddha's, this happens, the Buddha's already gone. They're about to have the first um, council of arahants, of awakened beings after the Buddha's departing. And Ananda is the one who knows all of the stuff that the Buddha said. He memorized it. That's where you hear when you read a sutta, it says, thus have I heard. And so, but Ananda's not an arahant. And so he's like, oh, I gotta be an arahant, I gotta be an arahant. And he's struggling and he's really practicing. And he gave up and he's like, oh crap, I'm not gonna be an arahant. As he's lying down, before it hit, his head hits the pillow, boom, he's an arahant. <laughs> so that, that's a story. Insight will come when it comes. Um, <clears throat> so no major insights recently come to mind. Sister Sama. How long have you been a nun? This is interesting. Where, where does this come from? Was there a bikuni here and I didn't know about it? Huh? Where, just today? Oh, I know, they've lived here in the past, but... I don't know. That's interesting. Okay. How can we reconcile the importance of right view <clears throat> with the Buddha's injunctions against holding views? Ah. Just like I said about craving, right? Craving for the ending of craving leads to Nibbana. <clears throat> right view leads to Nibbana. That, so, you know, that is very different, uh, different as opposed to holding all these different views that lead you astray. So you want to, the right view is the right understanding of what you need to do to reach the end of suffering. Of course, the Buddha says that there, there's a famous simile of the raft where even the Dhamma itself, you know, you use the, you use the raft to cross the stream. But once you're the end, you know, on the other end of the stream, you don't pick the raft up and go inland. I mean, unless you're like a special forces guy or something. Sometimes they do that. But like, you don't, what's the point of picking up the raft and bringing it inland? You leave the raft there. So when you've reached the other end, you don't need the Dhamma anymore. Like you don't need the, the, the training. You know, you don't need this. You let it go. You've reached the end of the stream. So... Does one choose his or her monastic name or is it bestowed upon you? What does your name mean to you? Do monastics use their birth names with family and friends? Um, Henipola Gunaratana is not Bhante Ji's actual like, birth name. Um, so for somebody who has come to like, America and they're a monk, most of the time their Dhamma name is going to be their name legally. Uh, my legal name is not Jayasara. <laughs> My legal name is still my legal name, and it's going to be. Um, I don't really see a, a point other than wanting to confuse and frustrate myself and changing my name and my 
passport and all these kind of things. So, yeah, um, you know, my sister, one of my sisters calls me Bonte J, but people call me Joe. It's fine. You know, it, it doesn't, you know, if they, they know me as Joe, I'm Joe. It doesn't matter. Um, so some people call me Joe. Some people call me Jay. Um, and, and as far as the name, um, if you want a poly name, which I highly suggest, they're pretty cool, come to a retreat that has an eight lifetime precepts event. Um, so when you come to a retreat um, th that you can take these eight lifetime precepts, it's a ceremony with Bonte G. You come up, he throws some holy water at you, he talks to you, <laughs> he tells you what your name means and all this kind of stuff, and then you have a name. And if you want to, every time you come here, you can be called by that name. That's so when I, I took the eight lifetime precepts at my second retreat here back in 2012, and um, I was given the name Jayantha. And, um, you know, that name became my name for everybody related to some of, the, some of you people here know me from before I was ordained. They used to call me Jayantha. They know that name. Um, but uh, what happened was I was told that that wasn't a monk's name. That's actually, ironically enough, I was given that name, and it's as common in Sri Lanka as Joe is in America. <laughs> so I had two common names. It was quite interesting. There's lots of Jayanthas. But um, so I, you know, I came to Bonte and I said, Bonte, I'm told this is not really a monk's name. You know, what, can you give me a name? Um, and I wanted to keep the J, because people had already been calling me J, and I didn't want to confuse people. So I said, you can keep that prefix, J, anything else. And so he gave me Jayasara. Um, and basically, Jayasara means, um, I didn't talk about, did I? No, nobody asked this question. I've, I've said this, I think I said this recently. That's why I'm thinking I didn't want to say it again. Um, so Jayasara, the, the first one, Jaya, Jaya is victory. So Jayantha means victorious one. Um, that was my old name. My monk's name, the first name, obviously it's the same thing, so it's victory. Um, now, Sara means a couple different things, but it's, it's going towards the essence of things, something like the heartwood. If you know the sutras, the Buddha talks about the heartwood, the most important part, the, the most, um, you know, the, the, the going to the root of something. Um, so you can, my name can be Essence of Victory, um, but as a child of the 80s, some of you might know, I, the, another way of translating it is Most Excellent Victory. Uh, some people know. Good. Uh, I haven't let go of all pop culture yet. I'm sorry. I've only been in the monastery a couple years. So Most Excellent Victory. Be excellent. Be excellent to each other, friends. <coughs> okay. That's it. Yep. I know. I know. Well, you can ask Bonte G. He can give you one anytime. Um, it was one of those things where normally we don't have a lifetime precept ceremony. On a, on a retreat less than five or six days, which today, which this retreat is. Um, so it was one of those things where initially it was decided that we would, and then it was decided that we wouldn't. 
after we had people registered and thinking they were going to come and take it. Yeah, unfortunately, sorry. Good. So yeah, um, if you, if the re- next retreat is at least six days, we'll have it. Yeah. Okay. Sister Sama's not here, unfortunately, so she can't answer this question. So we're done. We went 40 minutes over. You guys, you guys only have to meditate like 10 minutes now. <laughs> okay. Thank you. 